Hello, hello, hello. I hope you are having a beautiful day. This is episode 291, and today we're chatting about a lot of things. I'm trying to get better at explaining what's in our episodes. You can get a really nice, organized format of what we're going to be learning today. So we're going to be talking about metabolic health, insulin sensitivity and resistance, the bioindividuality of a human, including the root of issues on your ketogenic diet. When insulin is out there, what it's doing in your body, whether or not you're able to burn fat and really understanding insulin, what to do when you're feeling impatient on your ketogenic diet, how to know when your insulin is high. You know, a lot of people talk about insulin and how you don't want insulin, but how does that relate to blood sugar, blood glucose? What's the difference? How do we understand all of this? Um, Some signs that you're carb intolerant and what to do and how to improve your carb tolerance. The role of movement for carb tolerance, what's happening as we heal our metabolisms what the metabolism is, why it's working, how it functions, uh, when our metabolisms are healed, how do we incorporate carbs? Do we want to? Oh my gosh, today's episode is fantastic. We're joined by a dear friend of mine, Chris Irvin, who's brilliant. He's a nutrition science researcher and writer with an expertise in ketogenic dieting. Chris holds a master's degree in exercise and nutrition science and spent his time in graduate school studying the ketogenic diet for performance and therapeutic applications. Chris is the compliance and education manager at Perfect Keto and strives to make the ketogenic diet easy and keto science accessible to everyone. He is also the author of the Keto Answers book. Okay, if you have questions about today's content, as always, just head on over to healthfulpursuit.com slash contact, and you can literally ask me anything. And I generally respond to everyone's questions. And if I feel like it would be a good question for the podcast, I'll put it on the podcast. Um, so just a really good way of getting in touch with me and asking your questions. Now, There's going to be a lot of resources in today's show notes, including how to get in contact with Chris. Also, I've put together a carb uh, tolerance little worksheet. So if you are interested in doing more carb ups and incorporating carbs on your ketogenic diet, we talk about this a little bit today. You can grab the link over in the show notes. You can also go to healthfulpursuit.com slash carb up to get that. But when I say these auditory links, sometimes people miss it, especially when I say the word healthful pursuit, like yikes, that is hard to spell. (laughs) I'm also going to link up to episode 279 where we chatted about CGMs or continuous glucose monitors as Chris and I go into this in depth. Also, if you're like continuous glucose monitor, I want one of those. That sounds so cool. I'm going to include a link to the monitor that I personally use. In fact, I'm wearing one right now. So stoked that I get to wear one for the month of January. And with that link, you skip the line. So right now with the CGM that both Chris and I use, the lineup I think is like at, uh, I think last I checked was like 75,000 people are waiting for their levels. But through my link, you get access to the program before anyone else. And you should have your levels in a couple of weeks, if not sooner. So this is really good news. If you've been looking for a CGM, this is how to do it. And um, you can listen to episode 279 for more information on that. And then also I mentioned my six-week weight loss program. So I will include a link in the show notes there. Okay, blah, 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 blah. (laughs) Let's do this thing. (laughs) 
Hey, I'm Leanne Vogel, and you're listening to the Keto Diet Podcast. I've put together a free 21-page guide on achieving weight loss on your keto diet if nothing is working as a little thank you for being here today. Grab your free guide at ketoforwomen.com to get the steps you need to overcome the hurdles standing in your way. Hey, Chris, how's it going? I'm great, Leanne. How are you today? I'm so good. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Of course. I'm super excited to be on here. This is honestly, like no joke, one of my favorite podcasts to listen to. And so like to actually get to finally come on and chat is uh, pretty exciting for me. Wow. You're blowing my mind right now because <laughs> you're just so great. It's amazing that you feel like my show is one of the best shows. <laughs> well, it has to, I mean, I would have to say, is this the longest running keto podcast? I don't even know, my friend. I don't yeah. even know. I, I'm so bad at stats and things. Like people yeah. ask me, like, how many down? I'm like, I don't know. It's just awesome. Like, <laughs> I feel like when I first got into keto back in like 2015, 2016, yours was like one of the first, it was like you and, and Jimmy Moore, um, which yeah. wasn't specifically keto, but it was low carb. were like two of the first podcasts that were out there. And then yours was obviously like very keto specific. And I, I think it might be one of the longest running ones. We need to look that up, I guess. Well, you heard it here first, not from my mouth. <laughs> That's too great. I love it. And you came on the show a while back, but I didn't interview you. So this is like the first time we're actually like being able to have a conversation. Oh, yeah. We did that uh, little Q&A episode with uh, Dr. Gustin, right? Yeah. Oh, listeners really loved that one. I'll have to include it in the show notes. It was so good. And I really loved you know, just giving the show to guests, but I also really love having conversations. Yeah. With actual people. <laughs> right. You get a little bit of both, get the good conversation too. Exactly. So today we're going to be talking about carb tolerance, which, you know, back in 2014, when I started the ketogenic diet, I learned very quickly that women specifically, especially my body, I could not eat low carb forever and ever and ever. It just wasn't possible. I dealt with a lot of issues, a lot to do with my hormones. And so I wanted to have you on to kind of chat about what your experience has been with carb tolerance. And so I'd love for us to just define when we say carb tolerance, what are we saying and kind of what are we talking about today? Yeah, absolutely. So carb tolerance is like the way I like to look at it is that your body's ability to actually use carbohydrates. So, you know, we know that carbohydrates are an energy source. We know that, you know, a healthy body should be able to take in those carbohydrates and use them to produce energy, uh, use that energy to carry out the various functions of the body. But we also know that, you know, we live in a society now where there's a very high percentage of us who are carb intolerant or who are not very well able to use the carbohydrates that they eat. And we can get into that in this episode about, you know, the statistics of that and why that happens and what that means. But it, it's a really important thing because when we consider how our bodies, when we're not, if we're not metabolizing carbohydrates very well, or we have poor carb tolerance, but we're consuming a lot of them, that can come with a lot of health impairments. And that can cause a lot, a lot of the common chronic diseases that we see today are caused by carb intolerance and the continuous consumption of them when you don't have good tolerance to it. So, you know, in the simplest terms, carb tolerance is just your body's ability to actually use the carbs that it's eating. And we're really talking about metabolic health here, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and really, this like carb tolerance can kind of go hand in hand. It's essentially the same thing as insulin sensitivity or insulin resistance that you hear people talk about so much. Uh, it's just kind of the simplified. When you say insulin sensitivity, people are like, what is this guy talking about? But when you say carb tolerance, people can kind of resonate with that a little bit better. So 
um, yeah, essentially what, what it is, is this is metabolic health. It's our metabolism. It's, you know, all of us have a different metabolism that depending on our lifestyle and our diet and how long we've been consuming the diet we're eating now, it affects our metabolism and how we metabolize different nutrients. So, you know, to get into why it's obviously important is because insulin resistance, which is, would be the same thing as carb intolerance or an inability to use carbs is a precursor to diabetes, which we know is a huge problem. We know that like, it's like a third of our population in the U S is pre-diabetic, something like 50% or, or their, you know, the projections are for over 50% will be uh, diabetic by, I don't know if it was 2030 or something like that is, is what they're saying. So it's obviously a huge problem when we look at diabetes, but not even just diabetes, most of the chronic health conditions that we see today, um, things like even Alzheimer's and neurodegenerative diseases, um, obesity, cancer, metabolic syndrome, all of those things are caused by carb intolerance or insulin um, resistance. And to kind of explain a little bit of like what that means, on a basic level, when we consume carbohydrates, those carbohydrates get broken down into glucose. Glucose rises in our bloodstream. Our pancreas secretes insulin. Insulin goes and talks to our cells, the, the trillions of cells in our bodies, and says, hey, open up the doors, let glucose in so glucose can be used as energy. This is a good process. And, and somebody who is, whose body is doing this adequately or healthily is uh, somebody who we would consider to be insulin sensitive or carb tolerant. They're able to handle carbohydrates. Their cells respond to insulin. It's a great thing. Now, when this process gets chronically overstimulated, uh, which would happen from overconsuming carbohydrates for a long period of time, that communication between insulin and our cells becomes damaged. And those cells don't quite get that message from insulin anymore. So they're not opening up and letting the carbs be taken into the cell to be used for energy. And this creates a cycle where, you know, that means that our blood glucose stays elevated after we have the carbs, which means that our pancreas has to keep secreting insulin. And this can become a problem when it, it's taking place over the course of our lifetime frequently, right? So this, it's a, and again, that would be, you know, that the latter part of that would be carb intolerance or insulin resistance. It means that like your, your body's taking the carbs in, blood glucose is becoming elevated, but you're just not using them effectively. Your body just has, you know, for whatever reason, and we can talk about, it's not just carb consumption that causes this. There's actually other things that can cause this as well. But the primary cause is going to be probably the overconsumption of carbohydrates, which diminishes your ability to do it and thus makes you carb intolerant. And I'm hearing a lot of uh, threads of bio-individuality in here, yeah. like, depend, so like there's just, there's so much. And, and that's what I really dislike. You know, you go on the internet, you know, I have one app on my phone for doing plank workouts. And after it always shows me new keto programs that I really, really need. And it's like, step one, two, three, and you're going to lose 20 pounds. We guarantee it in a week. And I'm like, liars. Yes. <laughs> so true. Yeah. And, it, and it looks like, you know, it's one of those things where, if you look at our population and you consider what percentage of our population is insulin resistant pre-diabetic, like a standard keto approach is going to probably check most of the boxes that those people need at first. So that's why you see like the standard general recommendation for keto, which is essentially, you know, we're removing the carbohydrates, which in the case of people who are carbon tolerant are causing most of their problems. Simply doing that alone is a great way to get people kickstarted and going in the right direction, right? But as you start to like that, I mean, that we're talking about, you're on the standard American diet, anything else is going to be better. And especially keto, which is already a pretty great diet is going to produce a lot of improvements. But we know that as you continue to follow it, the bio individuality that you're talking about starts to come out a little bit more. And we have to, to look at it a little bit more. We have to make adjustments to our diet adjustments to 
you know, even not just nutrition, other lifestyle components, because it does become different. And, you know, you talk about like the gender differences as well. That's also something that we see. It's like, we can't make the same recommendations for, for male and female, and we can't make the same recommendations for different goals, right? It's just, it's all dependent on so many things. So, you know, I think that those, that general cookie cutter approach, probably not bad for the, the person coming from the standard American diet, but for anybody who's trying to take it that like little extra level or, you know, trying to really dial it in and get specific with their nutrition, it takes a little bit more than those cookie cutter approaches. Yes, completely. And ButcherBox features 100% grass-fed and finished heritage-bred pork and organic free-range chicken. ButcherBox sends you high-quality health-promoting meats directly to your door on dry ice, free shipping anywhere in the lower 48. ButcherBox makes committing to high-quality protein sources less expensive and more available to all. Their prices are hard to beat, and it's challenging to find a higher-quality product anywhere in the USA. I've been using ButcherBox since 2017 and love the convenience of a package showing up just when I need it. Their ground sausage is a dream. It's my personal favorite. Head on over to butcherbox.com slash keto diet to build a bundle that fits you and your family and start eating high quality meat without all the hassle of searching high and low for the good stuff. And what I'm hearing from you also is uh, insulin, you know, like oftentimes, you know, they'll start the ketogenic protocol and then we'll get impatient because it's not working. But there's that silent little guy in the background called insulin. And when insulin is out partying in your body, dot, 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 is weight loss happening? Are we burning fat? Uh, No. So so I think a lot of people don't think about the, the, the power of insulin and understanding, you know, it took you, let's say 40 years to get to this place. And now you're on your ketogenic diet, you're eating really well, you're feeling better, but there's quite a little bit of damage in the background and not not nothing you can't fix. You know, I really truly believe that a whole food based approach is going to heal your body over time. But I think a lot of people get that impatience, like you said, with that bio individuality, as it starts sliding in, there are issues that pop up. Right? Yeah. And you I mean, you make a really good point to talking about like, the, is your body burning fat when insulin's elevated? And that's kind of the whole thing, right? So when we look at it all kind of starts to make sense when you piece the puzzles together that okay, we have a, a great amount of our population is insulin resistant. And what that means is that means that they have a lot of insulin in their body. It means that like when they consume carbs, where for somebody who's you know carb tolerant, they may see an increase in insulin when they have carbs and then it goes back down. These people are having their insulin elevated all day. And like you said, when insulin is elevated, insulin directly blunts fat burning. So when insulin is up, you're not burning fat. So if people have elevated insulin levels all day, they're not burning fat, which makes sense why we, we have this obesity pandemic that we have in our, in our country and really in our world. And, but you know, when we start a ketogenic diet or we start a low-carb diet or whatever, like you said, it does take time to bring that stuff down. There's damage that has occurred in your body. And really the point, and this is where I think a keto diet specifically, like getting really strict and staying super low-carb, like lower than 30 grams, I feel like it's so restorative for people who are in these positions because you are, you're repairing your metabolism. You're completely removing the problem. Uh, well, one of the problems, you know, the other problem is probably veggie oils, which we can talk about a little bit, but you're removing one of the big problems and you're and you can start to heal when you do that. But like you said, it takes time, right? And I think a lot of times keto dieters or, or people who go low carb, they get impatient because they see that rapid weight loss at the start. And they're like, Hey, this is great. I lost seven pounds the first week. I must be doing something right. 
And then, you know, you start realizing that, okay, well, a lot of it was actually water weight. You still have, you know, a bit of restoration to, to, to occur still in your body before you're going to really get that metabolism back where it needs to be. Um, so I, you know, I think that you're right. We're, we're also, we're a country where we like quick fixes. We get marketed all the time that like a 30 day diet is going to solve all of our problems and help us lose all of our weight. Uh, and it's a lot more than that. And that's why I like the keto approach that talks more about, you know, we're using this diet to restore your metabolism. This isn't supposed to be a quick fix. This is let's get you back to baseline because you know, the baseline human should be able to consume carbohydrates. We should be able to have some in the right amounts. We should be able to use, like our body should be able to take them in, use them, transition back and forth between different fuel sources like fat, ketones, and carbs. But the truth is, is that most of us can't because of what the standard American diet is. So we have to take, you know, some people think of keto as an extreme diet. I don't think that it's an extreme diet, but it's definitely more on the extreme end than somebody who's like not counting macros and just eating whole food, right? And I think that like, that extremeness of being like very granular and, and checking, you know, every box and making sure that your carbs are below 30, that's going to be really important for those people who are in that state of like, you know, hyperinsulinemia and that insulin level always being elevated for them. Beautifully said. And how do we know that our insulin is high? Like I know somebody's asking like, but like I, I do all right. And you know, I check, I check my glucose once in a while. I think I'm all right. Like, how do we know that it's high or that there's an issue? Yeah. So, you know, I think that there's, there's a couple different ways for people who are maybe not as big into, you know, testing and, and, you know, biohacking and, and gathering data and stuff like that. You can really do it a little bit based off of feel. So, you know, if you consume carbohydrates and you feel groggy, tired, and bloated after you have them, it's probably a sign that there's some insulin resistance in your body because, you know, and of course the carb, the carb type matters. So obviously, regardless of your metabolic health, if you eat a donut, you're probably not going to feel great afterwards. Um, but if you're eating like a sweet potato or, you know, certain fruits and things like that, if that's putting you into like a carb coma or making you have like a lot of digestive issues, then you probably have some insulin resistance going on. So I think that some people can do this just based off of feel. And then for the people who want to go a little bit more in depth, there's a lot of testing that you can do. So personal testing, like you said, um, testing blood glucose, that's not going to give you a direct um, look at your insulin levels, but it is going to give you a good idea. If you have elevated fasting blood glucose in the morning, that's probably a sign that you also have some hyperinsulinemia or high insulin levels as well. And you know, when it comes to checking blood sugar, you can obviously do that with different like finger prick devices. I'm actually wearing one of the uh, Levels CGM devices, so. Um, I can scan like on my phone and get my, my reading in real time, uh, which is really cool for looking at like responses to certain foods. You know, does my body respond well to this carb source? Does it not? Um, you know, is my diet dialed in? Is it not? So, you know, you can definitely get into the, what I call like biohacking and, and just like the, the more technology data collection side of this. Uh, and then you can also go to your doctor, right? So you can get um, actual insulin blood tests done. You can get like your HbA1c done. You don't have to go to a doctor for that. You can also just go to like a, anywhere where you can get blood work done and, and look specifically for those tests. So I think that all of those are good. And really the answer, I think, for somebody is probably a combination of those things. I think that we should all keep pulse of how we feel. We should always be looking at like, how do our brains feel? How does our energy levels feel? How is our sleep, our recovery from exercise, you know, everything in response to the foods we're eating. So I think that we should do that. I think that like the data tracking like this that I'm using, doing that every once in a while and checking in, like I'm doing it for the next four weeks just to 
It's something that I do, you know, maybe once or twice a year just to make sure that everything's dialed in. I also like to run some different experiments on myself during this time when I have it. So check in with that. And then similar to the blood work too, you know, get that done every once in a while as just a way to check in and get a pulse on what's going on. So I think really a combination is, is the best, but it doesn't have to be as complicated as what everybody says. You really can go off of feel and listen to your body and get a lot of information that way. I love that you provided a bunch of different ways because some people like I love levels. I'm yeah. going to apply my next one in January and I can't nice. wait. I did it. I believe in September, October and wow, did I learn so much about yeah. my body in a four week period. Like yeah. it's amazing how much you learn. What are some of like the big takeaways that you were like blown away with as you started playing with the levels CGM situation? Yeah, for sure. And you're, I mean, this is where bioindividuality comes in the most because I, yeah. and I've seen, and like, I've seen crazy stuff with myself, the perfect keto team. We've had like, all of us have worn these devices. We love them. So we've like compared to each other and we've seen some crazy things. Um, but a few things that I've noticed is that, you know, different carb sources definitely impact me differently. So sweet potatoes don't bother my blood sugar very much. I don't get a big spike from them. I get a small spike from them, but they, it goes up and then it goes back down pretty uh, quickly after I eat. So that was a good thing to figure out. It's like, I actually like sweet potatoes. Um, so I can, you know, eat those occasionally now and throw those in without, you know, worrying about them spiking my blood sugar too much. Cassava was actually something that I found in me and me personally that my body does not do well with. I get a big spike in blood sugar when I have um, like cassava flour or cassava chips, which are becoming, and it's kind of becoming a popular ingredient in the low carb space. So those were two like diet specific things that I found. And it's interesting because comparing to like other people at Perfect Keto, you know, one of my friends, he had, he would have a sweet potato and his blood sugar would go through the roof and cassava and like cassava chips and things like that. No problem for him. So really big difference. And the, we're talking about two guys, very similar in age, um, very similar in level of fitness. Like, you know, from the outside looking in, it would look like we should probably be about the same, but drastic differences in how our body's metabolizing things, which was really cool. Um, and then I also kind of, you know, got a chance to study the Dawn effect a little bit with the continuous blood glucose monitor. So seeing that spike in blood sugar in the morning, um, which I think it's good for people to see that because you know, they, when you're just getting a snapshot and you're like testing your finger once in the morning, you may think that you're worse off than what you really are. But when you can test it right when you wake up and then test it a couple hours later and see that like, you know, that's just that dawn effect that's causing that spike in blood sugar in the morning. It makes you feel, it gives you a better understanding of where you're actually at with your metabolic health. And then caffeine was another thing that I found. Caffeine, really, uh, co coffee specifically, but you know, that's really my only source of caffeine. That spikes my blood sugar quite a bit too. So I try to be mindful of that, which was good to see because, you know, when you're not seeing that stuff and you're like, oh, coffee, no problem. I can have it as much as I want. Now I'm like, well, I should probably pay attention to it a little bit. So what did you find? Did you find anything interesting? Oh my gosh. Well, sweet potatoes spike me hardcore. Really? Like I did a test between a sweet potato, white potato. And I mean, this stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum. So I like yeah. tried to test it a bunch of ways. White potato, fine, fine, really? totally fine. Beans, wow. fine. Sweet potato, horrible at cassava also horrible like really? that stuff it's like it's it spiked me so bad um stress wow. like even while working i found when i had a deadline my glucose started increasing increasing and i would just take a moment step away from my desk and just breathe and then it would start to go down right i i loved that part um coffee also cannot do and also i really loved it for sleep quality 
So I had a lot of fun incorporating fasting or longer term fasts and seeing if I got up in the middle of the night, was it because my glucose was too low? Yes. So then I started having like a bit of protein before bed and I found like my sleep was so much better at certain times of my cycle specifically, like when my progesterone was high, my glucose started getting a little bit lower and I had a hard time sleeping. Um, so just to kind of correlate all these little pieces and again, in our conversation, I hear bio-individuality, like it's so cool. Yeah. It was such a blessing to be able to have that experience and I can't wait to do it again. Well, yeah, especially when you consider like, I mean, just you telling your story about the potatoes there, that's completely counterintuitive to what we would assume with nutrition, right? Like we look at glycemic index is something that, you know, doctors use to prescribe patients things, especially diabetic patients. And, you know, it would be things like have a sweet potato and not a white potato. But if you're not testing and you don't know, then you could be completely messing up your health or, or ruining the progress that you're trying to see because you don't have that bioindividuality. And so I, I really think it's, it's important to, to get a sense of that thing. Because like you, like you said in your story, you now know these things so you can make adjustments accordingly. Like you know the feeling of what it is to be stressed out. So you don't have to be wearing your levels device to know that when you're stressed out, your blood sugar's through the roof. You just know that, hey, when I'm feeling this way, I should probably take some time which the other cool thing about this is you can actually see how your strategies actually impact your health. You know, you don't get to see that when you're just doing things, right? Like you might feel better, but like the levels device, I can actually see that like, oh, and when I'm exercising more frequently, my fasting blood sugar is actually lower. So there for me is my kind of like affirmation that, hey, you should probably be exercising regularly. Or, you know, when you see that, hey, my blood sugar goes down when I take time to meditate or decompress or whatever, that's affirmation that you should do that type of thing. So I think it's a really good way to give people that little extra, you know, if you want it to be pushed a little bit more or you want it to have that, you know, that thing to hold you a little bit more accountable, getting some data is a really great way to do that. Completely, completely. I feel like just about everyone who's either new to keto or been doing keto for a while knows about perfect keto. They were keto before keto was cool. (laughs) They're a really awesome company ran by a bunch of really cool people. And they have the ability to know what keto people need because they are keto through and through. I use their products to stay in ketosis, burn more fat, extend my fasts, satisfy my sweet tooth. They have different supplements and snacks and supportive nutrients to get you on the ketogenic diet, transition easier onto the ketogenic diet, have boosted energy, overcome afternoon slumps. And what I really, really, really love about them is they understand that keto people also travel. Many of their products are so great for taking on the go, whether it be their MCT oil packets, which I personally love. It's the powder it adds to anything all the way through to their amazing, like, and I say amazing, with like rainbows and butterflies around it. Amazing protein bars. Like I cannot keep these bars in the house, whether it's Kevin having four at dinner time instead of an actual dinner or me sliding a couple into my little snack plate when I'm watching Netflix. These bars are legit. They're delicious. They're perfectly sweet. They're perfectly fatty and they have bits 
of cocoa butter just baked right into there. So good. And Perfect Keto's put together a wicked promo for all podcast listeners. When you go to perfectketo.com slash KDP40, you can use the code KDP40, buy one item and get one for 40% off plus shipping. Again, that's KDP40. Buy one, get one for 40% off plus free shipping. If you're trying to come up with some ideas and some product recommendations, number one, you need keto bars in your life. If you're having a hard time deciding, just go with almond butter brownie. You're welcome. Exogenous ketones I personally use to maintain my energy level and give my brain a certain edge. Another great one is their nut butters. Oh. They're good. Keto collagen is a winner, as is the MCT oil powder. So again, that's perfectketo.com slash KDP40 with the code KDP40, where you can buy one, get one 40% off. Enjoy. Before you mentioned increased glucose in the morning, perhaps being a sign of insulin resistance, but then there's the dawn effect. Are those two the same, different? Because we get a lot of questions about that. Yeah, so um, definitely different. And you know, when I say fasted morning blood sugar, that is going to be different from the blood sugar that you test right when you wake up in the morning. So when you first wake up in the morning, we see an increase in our blood sugar. And this is what we call the dawn effect. And the reason why this occurs is it's, it plays a role with our circadian rhythms or our wake sleep cycles. So when we wake up in the morning, uh, our natural, when our circadian rhythms are healthy, we have an increase in our cortisol levels in the morning which the purpose of those is to suppress melatonin. So the opposite happens at night. When we go to bed at night, melatonin production increases, which suppresses cortisol, which allows us to go to sleep. In the morning, the opposite happens where cortisol increases, melatonin goes down, you wake up. This is actually a good thing. This is, this is cortisol working how it should. You know, cortisol gets that bad rap of being like the thing that causes disease. Chronic cortisol does. Morning cortisol does not. Um, so but what happens is when we see this increase in cortisol, that's typically followed by an increase in blood sugar. Our, our liver is uh, putting out more sugar, blood sugar in the, or more sugar in the morning, causing our blood sugar to rise. So people who test their blood sugar immediately upon waking are going to see an elevation. But that doesn't mean like mine this morning, I think it was like 110 or 115 when I woke up. Um, but two hours later, it was down to like 78 or something like that. So it was kind of back down to, to the normal range where I'm typically at. So I always recommend for people when you're testing your morning blood sugar, try to do it about an hour and a half to two hours after you wake up, because that would be a really good way to make sure that you your kind of cortisol levels have evened out a little bit, pending what your morning looks like. If your morning's super stressful all the time, like you're in traffic and you know things are crazy, then that might be different. But typically two hours after will be a good time for that to, to come down a little bit. But I also think that it's really important to not have caffeine before you do that test, to not eat before and to not do exercise. Um, which for a lot of people, they're like, what the heck am I supposed to do in the morning? Then wait two hours, no coffee, no, like, what do I do? You don't have to do it every day. It's something you can do like once a week to check in and see like one day a week, wake up in the morning, don't have coffee, don't work out, don't eat, test your blood sugar a couple hours after waking up and then see where you're at. And then that's something you can track over time. Once a week, you can test that and you can check out that trend. Beautiful. And so we chatted a little bit about carbon tolerance and excess carbohydrates causing this intolerance, but you mentioned veggie oils Mm -hmm. and I'd love to just kind of dive in because I find a lot of my clients and just 
you know, when I'm on book tour or something, I'll just say like, what are you eating on a daily basis? And they're like, da, 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 salad dressing, da, 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 fried something, keto something. And I'm like, veggie oil, veggie oil. Oh, there's some vegetable oil there too. So we can we chat about the role of vegetable oils and how they might be detrimental to our ketogenic diet? Yes, absolutely. So this is, it's also one of the things that I ask the most. Like I get a lot of people hit me up to troubleshoot their diet, see what's going on. I actually work with a lot of professional athletes too, like working with their nutrition, especially in the off season. And veggie oils is a big thing because of inflammation and recovery for the athlete. They need to make sure they keep that in check. And it's crazy how much veggie oils people are consuming because it's in absolutely everything. Every standard dressing that has veggie oils in some form. And we're talking about vegetable oils. We do have to clarify what we're talking about because I know like avocado oil and olive oil, those are technically fruits. So they're actually not vegetable oil, but we, we've put those in the vegetable oil category. What we're talking about specifically here is things like canola oil or rapeseed oil. Uh, we're talking about safflower oil, soybean oil, corn oil, and then some forms of sunflower oil also fall into this category. Um, but these, these things are found in everything. They are in salad dressings. When you go to most restaurants, they're cooking in it. Even the, the quote, healthy restaurants are using vegetable oils because people think that they're healthy. Baked goods are loaded in vegetable oils. It's just, it's a very common thing, right? So, and that, so that kind of shows you why it's important because it's in everything. But the reason why we want to avoid it is because vegetable oils are really high in omega-6. Omega-6 are fats that we need to have in our body, but when we have too much of them or when we have a bad omega-6 to omega-3 ratio, we have higher levels of inflammation. So too much omega-6 fats is a great way to drive up our, our inflammation. Vegetable oils are loaded with omega-6 fats, but it's not just that they have a lot of omega-6 fats. It's the way that they're processed. So you know when you think about like avocado oil or olive oil, those are actual, like avocados and olives are fatty. They actually have fat in them. So you can imagine getting, extracting fat from an avocado because it's really high in fat. How much fat is in a soybean, right? Or how much fat is in like corn? It's like nothing, right? So you have to, one, it takes a lot. So like a cup of corn oil, I forget. It's, it's like a ridiculous number of ears of corn that it takes. I don't, do you know that number? You're not in your head. I don't. I'm like thinking it's something ridiculous, like 700, something ridiculous. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's ridiculous. And you're like, well, you would never be able, a human would never be able to consume that much corn or that much soy or anything like that. But we consume it so easily uh, in our diets because of the way that these things are incorporated in them. So these, these foods, these different vegetable oils, they're high in omega-6, but to get them because they're coming from sources that aren't rich in fat, they have to go through these super high heat extraction methods that you know basically pull this the the fat out of these sources and it damages these omega-6s so not only are these omega-6s but they're damaged omega-6s which are more toxic to our body and you know uh dr gustin he, he has like my favorite phrase about it he always talks about how they're like little firecrackers in our cells like when we have vegetable oils they they wreak havoc on not only our metabolic health but also our digestive health so they can increase inflammation in the gut they can um, just completely destroy our gut microbiome as well as just our, our digestive function. But then on the cellular level, they're also destroying our metabolism and they can, they can impair our ability to metabolize nutrients and especially carbs. So we see that like people who have insulin sensitive or insulin resistance or carb intolerance, any of those things, they're typically, it's coming from that overconsumption of carbs, but likely coupled with that overconsumption of vegetable oils that's also further contributing to the damage that they're seeing on, at the metabolic level. 
So these, it's really one of the most important things for people to cut out. A couple of years ago, if you would have asked me, I would have said that sugar, number one thing people should cut out. Yes, sugar is bad, but I think that vegetable oil is like public enemy number one. It's a thing that we should get away from as fast as we can. If not from health perspective, from an environmental perspective, these seed oils, you know, when you, like they're coming from in uh, industrial agricultural practices that are not great for our environment, that's that's very damaging to our environment. So if you don't want to do it for your health, cutting it out for the sake of the environment would be greatly appreciated. I think our earth would appreciate that. But yeah, so they're just they're this thing that they're they're in everything. They wreak havoc, and it's one of the primary reasons why people don't see we don't see the same progress for people on a ketogenic diet. You can be following a ketogenic diet where you're eating grass-fed meat cooked in butter or ghee or olive oil, and I can be eating a ketogenic diet where I'm going to McDonald's and having bunless burgers every day. And those are, you know, that's going to be two very different diets, even though macronutrient-wise, it may look the same, and even the food type, it may look the same, but the way that those foods are prepared are drastically different. And those vegetable oils, having high amounts of those, is just something that we... We really need to cut out. And, and for anybody who's on a ketogenic diet or a low-carb diet or a healthy diet, and they whether they're stuck at a plateau or they're not seeing the progress they were seeing before, or they just want to take their health to the next level, look at veggie oils, pay attention to how much you're getting in your diet and try to cut them out. And I promise you'll see a lot of benefits from doing that. Yes. And I had to Google it while you were talking. So it's like, is it 700? It's 780 pounds of corn. So two and a half gallons of oil requires uh, 56 pounds of, uh, what does it say? Um, 14 bushels of corn and wow. each bushel is 56 pounds. And so two and a half gallons of corn oil requires 280 pounds of corn. Wow. 780 rather, 780 pounds of corn. I mean, 200, 700, 780. That's insane. Right. It is insane. And then when you look at that number, you can understand it's like, Humans, have, we've never been exposed to that pre-vegetable oils. Like even when, you know, we were eating like more coin, corn or soy or any of that stuff, we were, eat, like, we were eating the whole plant. We were never able to get that much. Now, I mean, you can get like if you, I mean, I don't know what the number is. We'd have to do the math, but like to break that down to like a teaspoon, like that's still a ton of corn. That too you're much. <laughs> too much. Yeah. Way more than your body or your, your genetics or your aunt, like the your epigenetics, any of that stuff, it can't handle that. It's way more than we've ever been exposed to before. And it's it's becoming a problem. And I think that, you know, we know why it happened. There's some really good books out there that if you want to read how we've increased our consumption of this, um, the Big Fat, I think it's Big Fat Surprise by Nina Teicholz is a great book that yeah. tells about this. But essentially, it was our fear of dietary fat from, you know, animals and, and from, uh, you know, like saturated fat, all of those things. We became very fearful of those things. And we assume the vegetable oils would be better. And I'm sure there's probably some conspiracy out there about, you know, different industries that we were trying to support by doing this. But regardless, it, what this led to was a drastic increase in our consumption of these vegetable oils, kind of starting in the 70s. And when you look at the way that our health has just declined during this time, it's not, you know, it's not solely because of vegetable oils. But I think that, you know, one, one day we'll be able to look back and tease out that like vegetable oils played a very big uh, role in our current health problem. Yes, completely. Such a good book. I highly recommend The Big Fat Surprise. That was it's great. That It'll was get you fired so up. good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was going to say it's delicious. Yeah, it's just so good. Okay. 
I really hope you're enjoying today's episode. I'd love to see where you're listening from. You can snap a pic and tag me at Leanne Vogel or leave a review for the show on your favorite podcast player. It helps me out tremendously. Okay, back to the good stuff. Okay, so let's kind of switch gears because we've been talking about all the bad news. (laughs) (laughs) We're all doomed for failure. (laughs) Um, But the good news is, and we hinted at this a little bit before, is that we can heal our bodies and we can adjust things. And something that I've taken from our conversation so far is less carbs, winning, Mm -hmm. no vegetable oils when possible. Great. Is there a role of movement as we improve our carb tolerance? Like does movement have a role in any of this, like moving our body in some way? For sure. Yeah. And I think that like, you you get a lot of people who there's, you know, there actually is research out there that you, you can lose weight, you know, just through diet without moving your body and stuff like that. But I think that kind of goes against what we know is good for us. And movement is outside of, you know, metabolic health and things like that. Like we'll get into that in a second, but just movement in general is great. It's a great way to uh, just de-stress. It's a really good way to, depending how you do it, it, it's a good way to be social with other people or it's a good way to get outside and get fresh air. There's just so many benefits that come from moving your body. But then when we get down to like a metabolic level, you know, there's a lot that happens when we're training at a higher intensity, um, whether let's say that you are doing high intensity uh, interval training, or you're doing like, you know, very highly aerobic um, exercise, you're producing changes at your cellular level that it improves your body's ability to metabolize things. So, you know, if, if you're pushing it and you are you know, the fancy word would be mitochondrial biogenesis, which we won't get all, you know, too technical with. But what, what's happening is, is you're, you're, you're putting stress on your body that's allowing it to make changes that improve your ability to metabolize nutrients. So, and, you know, this also happens when we're putting on muscle mass or if we're decreasing our body fat percentage and increasing muscle mass, we're increasing our tissue that is able to, our, our metabolically healthy tissue or our tissue that can, you know, better metabolize a lot of nutrients. So a lot of these changes happen when we are exercising and moving our body. You know, I do think that a lot of like the things that the ancient uh, Romans believed was that if you had your diet dialed in, you, the the need to exercise your body uh, was less was kind of something that they believed. But the reason why they believed that was because so they could dedicate their time to other things like studying philosophy or, you know, it's not a good idea to use as an excuse to watch Netflix instead of going outside, right? Like you should, you know, put it to good use. But, you know, it is true. Like I found in myself since like, you know, I, when I was in college, I played sports. And so I was very healthy. I never really had to, you know, I had a big metabolism, but I also had a lot of energy expenditure. So it was very easy for me to keep weight off. When I stopped playing basketball and before I got into you know, keto, that changed. And I found that like, man, I had to be hitting it in the gym a lot to keep my, you know, body composition where I wanted it to be, to keep my health markers where I wanted it to be. And then when I found keto, and then over the course of five years of just kind of dialing it in and, and like we talked about the individuality, finding what works best for me, I have found that my body does actually require le- like, you know, I used to go into the gym and be in there for like an hour. And, and it would be like six days a week in the gym for an hour, hour and a half. And, you know, now I'm finding that like, you know, I actually require a lot less than that. And, and the, the exercise has become more enjoyable because it's like, I'm no longer in here, like pounding myself to like burn calories. I'm more of in here, like celebrating my body's ability to move and feel good and knowing that that's going to help, you know, contribute to the health improvements that I'm searching for with my diet. So I think diet and exercise should always go hand in hand. Um, I think that in most cases, nutrition is the biggest lever that people can pull to improve their health um, because, you know, the, the truth is, is you know, gyms are are not now because of COVID, but gyms are full. 
people are, are in there hitting the treadmill, they're in there working out, but they're still not seeing you know improvements in their health. So I, I still think that nutrition is that big lever. But if you add the two together, you're going to see some robust improvements with nutrition and exercise. Yes, completely. And for somebody like me that likes to just do life hard, you know, I did the gym thing for decades and it was great while it was great, you know, competed in all the things, but now, you know, I'm, I'm walking a lot. I'm doing a lot of activities. I'll park at the very end. My husband makes fun of me because like we park in the next parking lot over in the other complex, (laughs) you know, like just to get steps in and just to move or, you know, carrying heavy things or moving furniture, just doing you know, doing life harder. And that's kind of how I personally stay fit because you will not find me at least not now, like in a gym doing things with weights. I just have zero interest. And I think a lot of people get really overwhelmed with the whole program thing. And so I just wanted to share that for women that are like, you will not see me at a CrossFit place. <laughs> yeah. And just move. I, think, I think that like when it comes to exercise, because, you know, the other question that you get in this when you're talking about this thing is like, okay, what's the best type of exercise? And, you know, or, you know, if I want to lose the most fat, what's the best type of exercise I can do? The best type of exercise you can do is the one that you enjoy doing is, is what I tell everybody. So it's like, it's not about, you know, doing high intensity interval training for 10 rounds or, you know, to get in the gym and, and train for uh, muscle growth or, you know, lift weight, like do what you like doing. If what you like doing is gardening and you're outside, like, moving your body and picking up bags of dirt and moving things around, do that, you know, or if it's going for walks, do that, you know, if it's riding a bike, whatever, you know, for me, it's basketball is my thing that I love. I, you know, I did competitions back in the day too. I did like a physique competition when I first came out of college. I was on a treadmill every day for like 45 minutes and I hated it and just vowed that I would never do that again. And like now I just, i go back to playing basketball and I stay in great shape doing something that I love. And I don't even know that I'm working out when I do it. So it's like, find the thing you love and make that be your exercise. And don't, don't do what, whatever somebody said on Instagram, you have to do to lose fat. Because, you know, at the end of the day, if you hate what you're doing, does it even matter if it gets you to your health goal? Like if it's really, if you're miserable in the process, like our well being should be a part of our health as well. And not just, you know, our body composition or what our health markers say, we should think about how we feel too. Yes, I'm so glad that you mentioned that. And so what do we want to see? Like we chatted about how broken our bodies can become when it comes to our carb intolerance. But as we become more and more carb tolerant, like you and I said, Oh, yeah, man, I can slam a sweet potato or eat a white potato. And people are like, wait, what? How? So can we chat a little bit about what that process is like and how to know that you're ready to start eating these sorts of things? Yeah, for sure. So Anybody who's coming to keto, like, because for a specific reason. So if you're coming to a ketogenic diet, because you have a lot of weight to lose, or um, whether because a doctor told you or you've decided to do it, um, or somebody who is, you know, pre-diabetic been diagnosed with that type of thing, then this conversation is probably not for you yet. I think for, for those people, that's, you really need to focus on getting to the point of being carb tolerant, which is going to happen through more strict low carb approaches like a ketogenic diet. And sustaining that for a period of time, you're going to see metabolic repair that's going to kind of help get you back to that. Now, when you know that you're that you're able to do that, to, to do that, you're really going to probably have to do some testing, right? So I think that like, you know, you're going to have to get to a point where you say, hey, I think that my metabolism has been restored enough that I can handle having carbohydrates back in my diet, which, you know, that decision should be made factoring a lot of things in, right? Like we should also factor in our uh, relationship with food. Like if you had a previously a poor relationship with carbohydrates, 
and you know that you start having them again is going to mean that you're going to fall off the wagon and, and start binge eating again, then it doesn't matter what your carb tolerance level is. You should avoid the carbs. So there's definitely a know thyself when you're going through this. Um, but besides that, I'd say, you know, once you've gotten closer to your goal weight, um, once you feel like you're, you've kind of restored some of your metabolic health, you can start working some carbohydrates back into your diet and then testing your blood sugar along the way. So in terms of what would we be looking for, we would be looking for your blood sugar to return back to baseline quickly after having the carbs. So, you know, it's important for people to know that like when we're having carbs and we're talking about that, like we are still being temporarily kicked out of ketosis in most cases. And, and that's okay for, for where we're probably at in our journey, right? Like we maybe aren't focused and, you know, I don't want to speak for you, but for me, at least I'm not focusing on maintaining ketosis hundred percent of the time. I'm maintaining like cycling in and out of ketosis and being very easily able to like, I want to be able to wake up in the morning and fast and get into ketosis if I need to. Like I want to maintain that ability. So, you know, it's okay that you're being kicked out of ketosis when you fall into this category of like you're testing for carb tolerance now. So know that you're going to get kicked out, right? If you're, you're going to eat carbs, you're going to see an increase in your blood sugar. But what we care about is how quickly that gets back down to baseline. So, you know, typically what I like to recommend is within like 90 minutes to two hours after you consume carbs, hopefully we're back down closer to baseline. So for people who are wanting to test, what you would do is, is you would test your blood sugar prior to eating and then, um, and then you know, eat the, the carb food that you're going to have and then test you know, every 30, 45 minutes afterwards until you're back down to baseline. If it's taking you over two hours to get your blood sugar back down to baseline, you're probably not there yet or the carb source that you've chosen is not the right one. So you know, that's part of the, the role like we talked about. If you know, I'm not going to have a cassava, if it's going to cause my blood sugar to go to 160, like that's too high. But like a sweet potato, you know, it might increase my blood sugar to like 120, but I'm going back down to like 85 within like 60 minutes. So I'm good with that because, you know, that's just, you know, we, we fear blood sugar, right? Like we have this thought that like we should never see an increase in it. Blood sugar is fine. Having an increase in it and then, you know, having insulin actually put that into our cells, like that means we're using it. So, you know, that, that can be a great thing. So we shouldn't have to fear that. But what we do want to fear is that staying elevated for too long uh, because that's when it can become a little bit more toxic to our health and cause, you know, the insulin resistance and things we talked about this episode. So testing is really going to be like the primary way to do it. But like I said, I think that we really have to, to know where we're at in our journey and if you're listening to this podcast or you're just getting ready to dive into keto, I don't think this conversation is for you yet. I think that like you're in a position where we need to get you carb tolerant, which is going to happen through you know those more strict uh, carbohydrate restriction methods. Yes, I'm glad you prefaced all of that with a warning because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's so true. You know, I've been doing keto for uh, almost seven years, and mm -hmm. so it's crazy to like it's just crazy to think it's been seven years. But you know, our approach to keto after a year is going to be different than four years, which is going to be different than ten years. And so I really wanted to ask you that because a lot of the listeners um, have been doing keto for quite some time, and it gets to that point where there's just terrified of carbohydrates and they're just like you said their eyes are so focused on ketones and though there is so many benefits to generating ketones and for certain medical conditions those ketones are required yeah. um, but for us who are just doing it to help our metabolism to balance ourselves out I i'm with you i don't keep ketones are not king anymore i always say that to my clients ketones are not king like yeah. 
it's nice to know it's cool. You know, when you're doing a deeper fast, you know, when I'm at a certain point in my cycle and I'm fasting for maybe 48 plus hours, I'm going to be generating a lot of ketones, but yeah, yeah, I agree with you on that, that, um, they're not King, at least not for me now. Um, but they were at the beginning for sure. Yeah. And you know, I think that like ketones are incredible molecules. So they're like, they're these signaling molecules, which means that they like, they cause so many changes in our body. And there's even research coming out about like the genetic changes that can happen when we have them circulating. But one of the things I think they're best for is like they, they do help restore our metabolism. So ketones themselves can act as repair molecules. So for people who have very damaged metabolism or damaged mitochondria is kind of more specifically what we're talking about. Having elevated ketones more frequently is going to be more beneficial. And, you know, it's not going to be a linear benefit, but like pretty darn near close to that. Like the more you have them available, I think when you're trying to restore your metabolism, the better. But then once you've gotten to that point, now you can start using them a little bit more strategically and and for goal specific uses. So like for me, I like to use them whenever I'm getting into deep work. So I do a lot of writing. I like to write in the morning or you know, reading, research, whatever early in the morning. So I will fast in the morning and take strategies to get myself into a deeper state of ketosis because I know I operate better when I do that. Um, if I'm going, you know, sometimes I take a trip away for a few weeks to go deep into a writing project. To do that, I'm going to be I'm going to be keto when I'm gone because I want to be in ketosis during that. But outside of that, you know, it's I'm not necessarily focused on that. Like the, like you said, the ketones aren't king anymore for me. What's king for me is like my ability to do what I want to do, right? Like, does my how does my body perform? Can I exercise how I want to exercise? Can I, you know, do I have a lot of hunger and cravings? You know, how does my body feel? What are my health markers? Like, those are the things that become more king for me, which it's really important because you're right. So we, we so often associate ketosis with health, right? It's like, oh, I'm in ketosis, so that means I'm healthy. But we were just talking about vegetable oils earlier, and it's like, you can be in ketosis, on a 60% vegetable oil diet. And I promise you, you're not going to be healthy if you're doing that. So um, it, we, we should know that being healthy is about a lot more than just being in ketosis for sure. I'm so happy that you put those two together. <laughs> like you can, you can be completely unhealthy. I mean, eating a ton of dairy, eating a lot of inflammatory foods and also be in a state of ketosis. And I see that so, 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 so often in my practice. And I like to, you know, being this far along in my journey, just like you said, being able to use keto as a huge strategy, you know, when I'm traveling or I need to be on stage and on point in front of cameras, you get like guaranteed you test my ketones in and they're going to be high because they need to be like, I need to be on point. <laughs> yeah. It's, whereas, it's so cool to have that little tool in your back pocket. Yes. Though, isn't it? It's like, it's almost like you have, because when you when you are more metabolically healthy, you can more easily transition, right? So like a short fast, like even an intermittent fast can put you into a state of ketosis. A couple of days of being a little bit more strict with your carb restriction can put you in that deeper state. So when you have like, it's such a nice luxury to get to the point of good metabolic health. So you can sit there and be like, you know what, I got to speak in a week, but like, no problem. I'm going to like kind of dial it in a couple of days before. And I know that I'm going to be on point when I get on stage because I have this little extra tool which is, you know, metabolic flexibility in my back pocket. Yes. And, and to come, and I don't know if this is your story too, but for myself to come from severely broken, like my body was severely broken to be able to have that in my back pocket and to have that metabolic flexibility. I owe that all to a whole food based ketogenic diet, like completely a hundred percent without a doubt. Yeah. And I mean, big key word, I think that you said there that is probably also worth talking about is the whole food approach too, right? Like I think 
It's and I made this mistake when I first started of eating just a ton of processed keto food, which it was harder when I first started. I've been on keto roughly since like 2015, so you know about five years, and uh, and and it's easier to have more packaged foods now because there's so many out on the market. And you know, we talk about vegetable oils. If you're buying keto packaged foods, check the ingredient labels because so many of them are using soybean oil or canola oil or corn or maltodextrin or like all these things that like, yeah, it's low carb, but like it's not great for your health. But I was doing that at the beginning of keto. I was having packaged foods or I was making a lot of like keto desserts and things like that. And I saw improvements, but that was just because of the diet that I was coming from. You know, like I was coming from a worse diet. So, you know, this was better. But as I kept following the diet, I definitely found that I was like, man, I, I'm, not, I'm in ketosis, but I'm not experiencing that mental clarity that people are talking about. My energy isn't really what people are, you know, people are bragging up this diet to be great for your energy levels. I don't really feel that much better. What's going on? And then you start looking at it a little bit and you're like, well, all I'm doing is low carb. I haven't cut out, you know, other processed ingredients. I haven't, you know, added in more nutrient dense foods. And it happens all the time with new keto dieters. They, they're low carb, but they're also low nutrient and low calorie. And that can be a problem, right? Like if the great thing about keto is that you are removing things from your diet that are a problem, but you have to replace that with things that are great for you. You have to replace that with nutrient dense foods. And that comes from a whole food diet. So, you know, that doesn't mean that you should never, like, I'm one of those people also that thinks humans are great innovators. We've created some great things and, you know, to enjoy uh, the things that humans have created every once in a while, I think is great. But we need to be honest with ourselves and realize that the best diet is going to be the one where the bulk of our calories are coming from whole, real foods that our body actually recognizes that are minimally minimally processed, things like that. Uh, And when you do that, you're going to really see a lot of changes in your health. So again, anybody out there listening who you are doing keto and you're stuck at a plateau, like I get this, the plateau question I get all the time. It's like every day somebody's like, I'm stuck at a plateau. What, What do I do? And it's usually either vegetable oils or eat more real food or a combination of the two. Yes, I know. I um, launched a six-week keto weight loss program in October. And it was my first weight loss program, like a big group call, uh, coaching. And I was telling them to eat a whole bunch more. And we were cycling with their hormones and eating at different times and adding in flax and pumpkin and all these things. And people were like, I don't know, man. Like, you're telling us to eat a lot of food. I'm like, no, actually do it. And it was unreal. Like average weight loss was 15 pounds in six weeks by eating so much more. And I just was like, see, see, I told you. And it's so cool and empowering to see women who have been, you know, like you said, restricting their food, restricting their macros, like just ultimate restriction to be like, wait, I can eat all this and lose weight and feel good and have energy and, 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 and like, it's just so awesome. (laughs) It is. And you know, you bring up the, uh, the difference in like genders, right. And it, it is very common with women. I think in I think these questions that we're talking about, I do get most commonly from women. And it's created this like sense that keto or low carb isn't good for women. Like people think like, oh, it's not, it's not a great diet for women or it's not sustainable. And there, there may be some truth to the sustainability. I think that like, you know, there's probably some benefit to cycling out of it or, you know, bringing carbohydrates back into your diet in some form. But a lot of the, the complications that women are experiencing from doing a ketogenic diet are because they're way too low calorie slash too low protein, which, and it's because of two things, right? Like one, keto does definitely blunt hunger. So you're going to have to deal with that a little bit. But two, we're just ingrained to think that our calorie intake is the most important factor. 
you know, especially like girls have been told since they were younger, you know, to monitor their calorie intake and to not go overboard. So to switch that gear and being like, no, it's, it's actually a lot less about that. And it's more about what you're putting in your body. It's, it's a complete mind shift for a lot of these women. And, you know, the other thing you see too, is like, it's, you know, hopefully this isn't singling a, a specific gender out, but I feel like women are a lot better cooks than men in most cases. So women are making like all these like, because my sister, she she also did uh, keto for a long time. She had endometriosis. She did keto, saw a ton of uh, improvements from it. Uh, and she was went to culinary school. So she knew how to make all these like delicious like treats and everything. But you talk to like so many women, it's like that's become like 90% of their diet is like keto treats. And it's like, that's great. You're low carb, but you're low nutrient when you're doing that. Like if, if most of your calories are coming from almond flour and cream cheese and stevia, like you're not getting a whole lot of nutrients that your body needs to thrive. So I think in a lot of cases when women are having some of the complications, like even the things like hair loss or uh, hormonal issues, like the, the more serious things that are coming from this, I think a lot of that would be alleviated if there was just a little bit more uh, focus on, on a whole food diet version of the keto diet, like eat meat, don't be afraid of red meat, especially. It's incredibly good for us. It's the most nutrient-dense food on the planet. Um, eat plants, too. I think we're omnivores. You know, you don't need to go carnivore all the way. It's, there's a place for it, but like vegetables are good, too. And if, you, if you're getting the bulk of your calories from those things, you're going to be a lot healthier than you were before. Chris, you're amazing. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, preach. <laughs> it's so true. Amen. Amen. That was wonderful. Where can people find more from you? Yeah. So uh, you can find more from me on social media. So I'm uh, primarily on Instagram uh, at The Ketologist. I also have a website that is uh, theketologist.com. Um, and then I'm also doing, I have my own podcast and newsletter that are called the Thinking Health Podcast and the Thinking Health Newsletter, um, which is, it's kind of this newer thing that I started recently where um, the newsletter is, it's less about like science and stuff. And it's more about like diet philosophy. It's more about like mindset and how we can be approaching um, health in general. So that's the newsletter. And then the podcast is just, you know, everything. It's just all people from different walks of life, athletes, keto dieters, scientists, everything. Um, so yeah, those are, those are kind of the, the primary things. So that's thinking health uh, and the ketologist are the two ways. Brilliant. I will include all, the, all those links in the show notes. Again, thank you for coming on the show and sharing your brilliance and dropping a bunch of truth bombs. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for having me. I had a blast. That's it for our episode here. Thank you so much for hanging out with me for this episode 291. Again, I'm going to include all the links in today's show notes. So if you're not sure where to find those, you can always go to ketodietpodcast.com and look for episode 291. And we'll have all the resources on there, including how to reach out to Chris, if that's of interest to you. Okay, next up on the show, Wednesday, January 20th, episode 292. We're joined by Josh Clemente, who's chatting with us about metabolic breakdown and your perfect diet, your perfect diet, you individually yours. Oh, this is good stuff. And then Sunday, January 24th, episode 293, I'm joined by Dr. Mindy Pels. Now, I'm brand new to her work and I'm obsessed with her. She's fantastic. And we're chatting about, do you need a reset? Actions for women on keto. I can't wait to share that one with y'all and I will see you on Wednesday for another episode. Bye.
Thanks for listening to the Keto Diet Podcast. Join us again in a couple of days to discover more Keto for Women secrets for your fat-fueled life. Music for the Keto Diet Podcast provided by Yechi. Follow Jacob on Instagram at Yechi underscore official and on Spotify as Yechi. That's Y-E-C-H-I. The Keto Diet Podcast, including show notes and links, provides information in respect to healthy living, recipes, nutrition, and diet, and is intended for informational purposes only. The information provided is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment, nor is it to be construed as such. We cannot guarantee that the information provided on the Keto Diet Podcast reflects the most up-to-date medical research. Information is provided without any representations or warranties of any kind. Please consult a qualified physician for medical advice and always seek the advice of a qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding your health and nutrition program.